0: Let's turn in our Bibles at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's give attention now to God's holy word beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of the circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 4 as we focus our attention upon Verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul here speaking of Abraham, the fact that he was justified through faith in the promise of God prior to his circumcision, he says verse 11, and he, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that He might be the Father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the Father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised. And you can see verse 16 as well emphasizing a similar point here regarding Abraham as the father of the faithful. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Now as we consider the context once again of our passage here, seeking to build in some sense on our message last time where we considered the blessing of justification, the blessedness of the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered and to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And we said that there were a few extra points that we didn't get a chance to consider last time that we would consider this morning. And in God's providence, as I wrestled with those additional points, they morphed into uh, a sermon in and of themselves. So that they are connected to what we said last time, but uh, it's, it's not really a continuation of that sermon. What it is, is a consideration of what Paul says in verses 11 and 12, and, and even beyond that, regarding the centrality of justification by faith alone. Now, we recall in this context that Paul, as he often is, as he's explaining the message of the Gospel, in the back of his mind, he's dealing with this false teaching that has come into the churches, especially the churches in Galatia, but no doubt this was a threat throughout the world because it was a doctrine of the Jewish Pharisees that had crept into the life of the church largely by way of a group called the pharisaical judaizers those who maintained that one's right standing before god one's justification one's salvation was not only by faith but also by various works works that were in accordance with the moral law of god so moral works were added to faith in terms of a sinner's right standing before god in addition ceremonial works such as circumcision. You can see this in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 the false teaching that prompted the council in Jerusalem we're told certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and you can see as well verse 5 "...but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed..." So these are Pharisaical professing Christians, Judaizers, "...saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses." Now we've seen Paul addressing this problem of adding moral works to the gospel, that you have to keep the law of Moses in its moral aspect. He's been addressing that for several chapters now. Pointing out that all men by nature are morally corrupt and disqualified for a right standing with God by nature. They need the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God through faith. And he's also pointing out the futility and the foolishness of saying that someone needs circumcision to be justified. And he does that here in our text by simply pointing out that the first guy to be circumcised was justified long before that through faith in God's promise. So clearly the very origin of circumcision when God instituted it in Genesis 17 was for a man who'd already been justified. So it makes no sense to say that receiving the sign of entrance into the covenant was a prerequisite for something he actually already had. And then once that sign was applied to the children of professing believers within the covenant community on down through the ages, uh, it's, it's foolish to say that somehow that sign of the covenant forms the basis of their justification. No, it points to the reality that justification is by faith alone. Righteousness by faith. It's a sign of that and it's a seal of that and more could be said there, but that's the basic thrust of the argument. In fact, it's a very simple argument that we don't really need to spend too much time on other than to get deeper into what Paul's saying here in terms of the centrality of justification by faith alone. Because you see, in making this argument, Paul makes some very strong statements about the role of justification by faith alone in the life of God's covenant people. He makes some very strong statements that have some very serious theological import. Now again, we can look at the idea that the sign of the covenant can't be the basis of justification and we could apply that to the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification by way of baptismal regeneration, things like that clearly the sign of the covenant, the seal of the covenant, whether it's circumcision or baptism, cannot form the basis of our right standing with God. But we can go even deeper. Look at what Paul says about justification by faith alone. Verse 11, he says that the sign of circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had while he was yet uncircumcised. So he's saying that circumcision... Itself actually points to the reality of justification by faith alone. We know it also points to regeneration, the cutting off of the the sinful nature, the cutting off of the flesh. We know that from Colossians 2. We know it from the end of Romans 2. We spent two sermons discussing it. But according to Paul, regeneration is not the only thing signified in circumcision. It also points to the righteousness of faith justification by faith alone that's a very strong statement that we're going to unpack in addition in verses 11 and 12 we find that Abraham by his justification by faith alone prior to circumcision became the father of all those who believe in other words he is the father of God's church God's covenant people on down through the ages And the covenant promises that have been made to God's church have been made to the seed of Abraham. That's a phrase that's often used in the Bible to describe God's covenant community. God's church, the seed of Abraham. These things are almost synonymous. If you follow the biblical theological usage, God's church is the seed of Abraham in Christ because Christ is the supreme seed of Abraham. But in Christ, we're Abraham's offspring. You see that at the end of Galatians 3 as well. Now, to say that Abraham's offspring is defined by those who believe in Christ and receive righteousness imputed and received by faith is a very strong statement about how we are to define God's covenant community. Who today can be considered part of God's church, part of God's covenant community, part of Abraham's offspring, not just on an individual level, but what religious organizations in our day and age have a right to refer them to themselves as a church of God, as a true visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the seed and offspring, the covenant community that is in continuity with Abraham. What religious organizations have a right to make that claim? And here we're told that whatever religious organizations may claim to be the true visible church of Jesus Christ, or a part thereof, that claim is only valid if they hold to the faith of Abraham, who believed God, and it was accredited or imputed unto him for righteousness. And so the doctrine we're gleaning from these verses is that This doctrine of justification by faith alone is an essential mark of the true visible church of Jesus Christ. It is a sine qua non, without which, not. Without some profession of this doctrine, to some extent, we understand there are different degrees of faithfulness, but without this doctrine in substance, a church cannot claim with any validity to be part of the true church of Jesus Christ, because if, if they don't have this doctrine to some extent, if there's not at least some institutional remnant, at the very least, of holding to this doctrine, proclaiming this doctrine, then you can't claim to be the seed of Abraham because he's the father of all those who believe. He's the father of all those who have righteousness imputed to them by faith, not the father of people who add works of various kinds to the equation of justification. And this is clear throughout the New Testament teaching, particularly of the Apostle Paul. You can see it in your call to worship. As Paul is spelling out the unity of the one true church of Jesus Christ on earth, the visible church. Again, we're speaking here of the visible institution of the church, those who profess uh, the true religion and their children. Notice how Paul strings together these pearls on the necklace in a way that makes them utterly inseparable. He says, midway through your call to worship here, he says, there is one body and one spirit. This is Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So if we're to understand the true visible church of Jesus Christ, we're to understand that it is one body and it is the temple of one Holy Spirit. So the true body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you say that a religious organization is part of the body of Christ in some sense, you're saying they're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That they're filled with people to one extent or another who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That the ministry of the Gospel or whatever whatever Gospel they're preaching is a ministry of the Holy Spirit who has anointed faithful uh, preachers and teachers. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So that one body inhabited by the one Spirit has one hope. That is namely, heaven. One hope of your calling. Absent from the body is present with other people in purgatory. No, nope. Present with the Lord. One hope of our calling. One city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. One Lord. That's not just saying that we believe in Jesus. But it's saying that for the true church of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Lord and King of His church. But in any event, one Lord. So the true church, filled with the true Spirit, understands the Lord to be God and man, the only Savior. One Lord, one faith. So the true church not only believes in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, the Father of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, the One Spirit, not only an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and of Christ as one person with two natures, God and man, but also one faith. In context here, that's the faith of Abraham, the faith of the Gospel. Justification by faith alone. One baptism. So the one body inhabited by the one Spirit They're heading as a a group, not everyone's converted, we're not saying that, but as a visible church, they're heading toward that one hope of their calling, trusting in the one Lord according to the one faith of the Gospel, and they have one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in them all. Again, those who believe what the church teaches in the true church will be inhabited by the Spirit. They will be on their way to heaven. Those who believe what the true church teaches. Now, um, notice how these things go together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is going to be very important as we develop this point. But I want you to notice that apart from the one faith, you can't claim to be the one body. And I would argue you can't claim to have the one baptism. The moment you take that one faith out of the equation, it's like Jenga, the whole stack falls to the ground. From, an, from the standpoint of exegeting that text. The one faith is essential to the one body and the one baptism. And in fact, the Lord Jesus makes this clear that churches that abandon the one faith in one way or another cease to be churches at all. Revelation 2 verse 5, he speaks to the Ephesian church. And he says if they don't repent, he will remove their lampstand from its place. And that lampstand is a picture of the Spirit of God inhabiting the true church. He'll remove their lampstand if they don't repent. Revelation 2, verse 9, speaking to the church in Smyrna, I know your works tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jewish people was God's covenant community. They actually descend from Abraham, but Romans 11 says they were cut off from the olive tree of God's covenant community and of the church of Jesus Christ visible, cut off because of unbelief in the gospel. And Jesus says clearly here that they say they're Jews, but in terms of membership in God's covenant community, they've been cut off. They're no longer a true church or synagogue, but rather a synagogue of Satan. And in your bulletin insert, you can see this developed in our confessional standards. Larger Catechism 62 The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. And it cites Genesis 17 verse 7 as one of the proof texts. So the authors of our larger catechism are thinking in terms of the seed of Abraham, the covenant community that stems from Abraham. And who are the sons of Abraham who is the seed of Abraham what is the covenant community the religious body that descends from God's covenant with Abraham it's those who profess the true religion and if we define that by the clear teaching of our text then the true religion at its essence holds to justification by faith alone a denial of that doctrine an explicit repudiation of justification by faith apart from works of the law is clearly incompatible with true religion. So to be the true visible church, you have to profess the true religion as a denomination or a religious body. And that requires the one faith of justification by faith apart from works. You look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, section 5, It says this, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. So we shouldn't be too quick to unchurch a certain religious group because they go backslide or something like that. Uh, But it says, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. And one of the proof texts that they cite is Revelation 18.2, which at the time of the Westminster Assembly... Uh, Because perhaps they were more biblical back then. But at the time, that was understood of the Roman Catholic Church. That was understood of the Roman... So they were applying it in their own day to situations and circumstances in their own context in the middle of the 1600s. And they're saying, some have so degenerated, such as Rome, mystery Babylon, the great whore, that was their perspective in the Westminster Assembly, They've so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. And they also cite Romans 11:18 18 through 22, which of course I've already alluded to, the cutting off of the Jews who, re- who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cutting off of those unbelieving Jews from the olive tree of God's covenant community. And notice in those verses, Paul actually exhorts the church at Rome, to whom he's writing, by the way, let's, let's not forget that, this is the epistle to the Romans, and he says, you should not be arrogant and high-minded and think that this could not happen to you, because if you reject this one true faith of the gospel, you'll be cut off as well. So the Bible actually threatens the church of Rome with this very judgment in particular. But of course it applies across the board. Now, there's evidence for this doctrine clearly in our text. And again, our doctrine is that justification by faith alone is an essential mark of the true visible church of Jesus Christ. Where do we see this in our text? First, circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of faith. Now, you've got to understand with circumcision, this ordinance is immensely significant in terms of the Old Testament. Those who were members of God's covenant community were called the circumcision. You see that throughout these verses. When Paul wants to speak of the Jews, he speaks of them as the circumcision. In fact, sometimes in our Bibles, certain translations will translate it differently, but in the Greek, it's just the circumcision. Speaking of male and female Israelites or Jews, but the point is they were defined by this ordinance. The Jews were the circumcision and the Gentiles were the uncircumcision. These were the two main categories. We could speak of the church and the world as two main categories, but in terms of Old Testament thought, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, these are the two defining categories. In Genesis chapter 17, the Lord goes so far as to say that circumcision is the covenant. This is God's covenant with Abraham. It's the covenant of grace into which we've been brought as believing Gentiles in the church today. But the Lord actually emphasizes circumcision to such an extent that he refers to it as the covenant. Now, of course, that's a figure of speech. Circumcision itself is not the covenant itself any more than the bread in the Lord's Supper is the literal physical body of Christ or that the cup in the Lord's Supper is actually the new covenant in his blood, right? The new covenant is is, uh, downstairs in the kitchen. Okay, no, it's not literally the new covenant, but it signifies it as it's used in the Lord's Supper. So understand that circumcision is of the utmost importance. And so when Paul says that circumcision, which embodies the whole covenant of God with His people itself, that circumcision is a seal, a confirmation, an authentication of the reality that God's people are justified by faith. It is a seal of Abraham's faith righteousness. When he says that, we cannot underestimate. We ought not to underestimate. We can't overestimate the significance of that statement. That is to say that justification by faith alone is of the essence of God's covenant and of God's covenant community. Uh, And certainly as we look at the sign of baptism that has replaced circumcision, yes, it points to regeneration, perhaps even its primary focus, regeneration, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit to make us new creatures in Christ, cleansing away original sin and so forth. Um, you know, Jesus alludes to Ezekiel's prophecy about being uh, born again with spirit and water, and there's a lot of imagery there, washed and cleansed. But in addition, clearly, baptism refers to the remission of sins as well. And we could go throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2, uh, what is it, Acts 9, that Paul was to rise up and be baptized for the remission of sins. Baptism is, is... Connected no less with justification and the remission of sins. So, when the sign of the covenant itself is linked indelibly to this doctrine, we know it's of the essence of the covenant. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul identifies the true church against the false church or the false religious organizations, Philippians 3 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Now, in the Old Testament, the term "dog" could signify either, in some sense, a, per- a pervert, someone who was engaging in such unnatural lusts and perversions that they were referred to in this way. But, but more often than not, it refers to a Gentile. Even when Jesus uses that illustration with the Syrophoenician woman, that you know, the the bread is for the children at the table, and she talks about the crumbs falling down to the dogs under the table. Uh, The children would be the Jews, the children of Abraham, and the dogs would be the Gentiles. Make of it what you will, that's the vocabulary. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These are the Jewish professing Christians that are trying to force the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be justified. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, we could say with eyes of faith, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying the true circumcision, the true covenant community is those who profess the true religion, the true faith, that they have no confidence in the flesh. Well, what's confidence in the flesh? He goes on to describe, he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless, so all the moral and ceremonial works that the Judaizers are trying to add to the gospel. He says, I've got all these things in some sense. I have reason to boast in these additions to the gospel in my own life. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. He's saying just as the, the foreskin is cut away and cast away, he says, I've cut away and cast away and counted as loss, as something to be thrown away any confidence or hope in my own righteousness. These things are lost, they're in the debit column, because they're filthy rags infected with sin. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Again, he's using the imagery here of circumcision. All these things have been cut off. My confidence in the flesh. All of these outward things. I've cast them away to receive Christ. This is a picture of justification by faith alone. Renouncing all else. Renouncing our confidence in the flesh. Renouncing all hope and confidence in any other righteousness than that of Christ. And he says... Uh, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. That's been circumcised away. Renounced. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So that's the true circumcision, the true covenant community that is the one body who holds the one faith. And it's important to recognize even the institution of circumcision in Genesis 17 comes right after Abraham and Sarai had plotted at the instigation of of Sarah, had plotted for Abraham to go into his handmaid Hagar, Sarah's handmaid Hagar, and to conceive a child of the covenant according to the flesh. And so they violated this principle of faith in God's promise. They took it into their own hands by their own performance. Abraham, by his own performance, his own works, could produce a child according to the flesh. Read Galatians 4. This is used by Paul as a way of portraying justification by faith plus works. Adding our performance to the outcome of God's promised salvation. And so God comes in the subsequent chapter, Genesis 17, and institutes circumcision in such a way as to repudiate that, to cut away the flesh, and to open the way for a child of promise by faith. So justification by faith alone, according to that, is an essential mark of the true visible church of Jesus Christ. Another proof for this in our text is that Abraham is called the father of those who receive justification by faith apart from works. As I've said, you can see in verses 11 and 12, he's the father of all those who believe, both Jew and Gentile. You can look at verse 13 and 14, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So the seed to whom the promise was made, the seed of Abraham, is through the righteousness of faith. That's how the inheritance is given. That's the basis of membership. The righteousness of faith. Um, You can see as well, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's the father in that sense of the visible church. We're the seed of Abraham in Christ. And those who have that faith, those who profess that faith alone are to be considered those who profess the true religion. Uh, You can see the seed of Abraham is defined in this way. Uh, at the end of verse 18, so shall your descendants be. And uh, verse 23, now it is not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. So it was written for his offspring and the true church of Jesus Christ who receives imputation of righteousness through faith in Christ alone. That's how Paul defines the true church. Listen to this quote from James Bannerman in his magnum opus, The Church of Christ. Quote, To hold or to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church because this is the one thing for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth. A true faith makes a true church, and a corrupt faith a corrupt church. And should it at any time apostatize, that is, fall away from the true faith altogether, it would by that very act cease to be a church of Christ in any sense at all." End quote. Now, the implication here is very clear for the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, which anathematized those who hold to or preach this doctrine of justification by faith alone, they anathematized us all at the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church, which you can read on our book table, I have a booklet there, 45 questions every Roman Catholic should ask themselves about their personal faith. It goes through 45 different questions and answers in the Roman Catholic Catechism, and demonstrates in quite a few of those that the Roman Catholic Church even today teaches justification by faith plus works. They're not gonna say it exactly that way, but they're gonna say, well, you're justified by faith and hope and love. In other words, faith as a virtue, faith as an obedient response uh, to God's covenant promise. Faith and hope and love and, and all of these graces that God puts in your life As you put those into practice, you see, you're righteous in God's sight. Faith plus works, a false gospel and a denial of the very doctrine that the Bible says is of the essence of the true visible church of Jesus Christ. And you see, if that's the case, if Rome is not a true church of Jesus Christ based upon their own public documents, then the fact of the matter is that the ministry and sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are no longer true ordinances of Christ. See, if it's not a church that holds to the one faith, therefore, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't have any right to claim to be the one body. It's not inhabited by the one spirit. Its ministry and sacraments are no longer true ordinances of Christ. Listen to larger Catechism 166 regarding baptism. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church and so strangers from the covenant of promise till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him. But infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to Him are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. So notice that baptism cannot even be administered to someone who's not in the true visible church of Jesus Christ. It can only be administered to those who are brought into the true visible church of Jesus Christ by professing their faith in Christ, and then baptism comes to them and to their children. But Roman Catholics do not profess the true faith of the gospel. The Roman Catholic Church itself does not profess the true faith of the gospel. And when their people profess the Apostles' Creed, they're professing it in the way Rome has interpreted it, which is in an utterly heretical and false manner. When they say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, or I believe in the forgiveness of sins, they mean something diametrically opposed to the Gospel and truth of Scripture. And so, if they don't have the one faith, they're not the one body, and if they're not the one body, then they don't have the one baptism. Once again, the visible church is a society made up of all such as in all places and ages of the world do profess the true religion and their children. That's larger Catechism 62. That's our definition of the visible church. Does Rome profess the true religion? If you say no, then it's not the visible church and therefore its baptism is not true baptism. The logic is irrefutable. The string of pearls cannot be unstrung without causing everything to fly in all different directions. There are often people that bring up these, these sort of peripheral, ancillary observations and nuanced distinctions, but forget about that for a moment. Just look at the obvious logic. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. In addition, Confession of Faith 27.4 There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say baptism and the supper of the Lord. Neither of which may be dispensed by any but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Are Roman Catholic priests today set apart by the Holy Spirit, Acts 20, are they set apart by the Holy Spirit as overseers of the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood? If they are, we've got some serious problems with our doctrine of the church. They're Satan's ministers, as we'll see later from 2 Corinthians 11. But if they're not set apart and set in place by the Holy Spirit as overseers of the flock of God, which Christ purchased with His own blood, if they're not ministers of the Word lawfully ordained, then they have no authorization from Christ to perform a valid baptism. So from every angle, you've got serious problems when you argue that in our day and age, here and now, Roman Catholic baptism is true Christian baptism. If it's true Christian baptism, then Rome's part of the true visible church, which means Rome's gospel is true religion, and you really can't go one way or the other. There's no neutral gear. Um, you, You have to take a stance here. And we take our stance with the principles outlined here in our confession and of the Apostle Paul in our text. Now, there are going to be objections here. When we say justification by faith alone is an essential mark of the true visible church of Jesus Christ and that uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not have a valid ministry or sacraments, we're going to get pushback, no doubt. In fact, most Reformed and Presbyterian people today and at various times in history have held the opposite view. So let's be honest about that. We're going to get some objections. First, someone might say, well, if that's the case, was there no true church prior to the Reformation? Was there no true church prior to the Reformation? After all, some of the phraseology, justification by faith alone, some argue uh, came into play with Luther and not beforehand. Well, we could go to Galatians 2 and actually find that Paul says that justification is not but by faith, if you look at the Greek behind it, but in any event, that phraseology and Christian theology does come come into view at the time of the Reformation. So is it true that prior to the Reformation, the church, in a wholesale manner, rejected the true gospel and believed in justification by faith plus works? Well, let's look at Clement of Rome. Depending on which Roman Catholic resource you look at, Clement of Rome is either the second, third, or fourth Pope. Uh, He's referred to as Pope Saint Clement. And he wrote in the first century, he's probably the same Clement who was an associate of the Apostle Paul and is actually referred to in the New Testament. Uh, So Clement writes an epistle to the Corinthians and he says this, quote, "...let us clothe ourselves with concord and humility." ever exercising self-control, standing far off from all whispering and evil speaking, being justified by our works and not our words. And does he that is ready in speech deem himself righteous? Let testimony to our good deeds be borne by others as it was in the case of our righteous forefathers. End quote. Now, what, what I want to point out here is that he's using the word justify in exactly the same way that James uses it in James chapter 2. When he speaks of justification by works, he's saying if you profess to be a Christian, you've got all these words that you're speaking, you're not justified by simply saying you're a Christian. You're not vindicated in your profession of faith simply by making it with your lips. You're not justified by your words, but you're justified by your works. So that testimony to your good deeds will be borne by others, seeing your good works and vindicating your profession. So he uses the term justify in exactly the same way that James uses it and has no reference to our right standing with God and every reference to the vindication of our profession of faith. Then in chapter 32 of that same epistle, he says this. All these, speaking of the Old Testament saints, all these therefore were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake or for their own works or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of His will. And we too, being called by His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's saying Old Testament saints and New Testament saints were made right with God, not by anything in themselves, but merely by the grace of God. That's the same author using justification in the way James uses it and the way Paul uses it. So you can see, even the Pope got this right early on in the church. Now, I'm not sure. Maybe they would say, well, he wasn't infallible there, or they would try to reinterpret it, which really begs the question. If we can't just read Clement of Rome without understanding him, and we need further interpretations, that undermines the entire construct of papal infallibility. But the point is, the church had a remnant. The church received this doctrine And to one extent or another, this doctrine persisted. Even in in the later stages of the medieval period, there were believers. There were communities of saints in various places that had not bought into the Roman Catholic heresy. And if we had time, we could go into the Waldenses and the Albigenses and some of these proto-Protestant groups. But in any event, uh, yes, this doctrine did exist after the Apostles in seed form till the time of the Reformation. Another objection why then did the Reformers accept Roman Catholic Baptism? Well let's ask the Reformers look in your insert French Confession of Faith of 1559 chapter 28 this was written by John Calvin. Let's hear the reason why the Reformation Church I believe rightly accepted Roman Catholic Baptism. Quote In this belief, we declare that, properly speaking, there can be no church where the Word of God is not received, nor profession made of subjection to it, nor use of the sacraments. Therefore, we condemn the papal assemblies as the Word of God is banished from them. Their sacraments are corrupted or falsified or destroyed, and all superstitions and idolatries are in them we hold then that all who take part in these acts and commune in that church separate and cut themselves off from the body of Christ. Nevertheless, as some trace of the church is left in the papacy and the virtue and substance of baptism remain, and as the efficacy of baptism does not depend upon the person who administers it, we confess that those baptized in it do not need a second baptism. But on account of its corruptions, we cannot present children to be baptized in it without incurring pollution. End quote. So notice, they're saying Rome is not the true church. And those who commune in that church cut themselves off from the body of Christ. But they're saying for three reasons, and notice at the end, there are three reasons they accept Roman baptism at that time in the 1500s. Three reasons, And these reasons are separated by the word and, not or. So all three of these have to be true if you're going to take their approach to this question and apply it today in the same way they applied it in the 1500s. All three of these things have to be true. One, some trace of the church is left in the papacy. Let's come back to that one. Two, The virtue and substance of baptism remain. So, well, it's still done with water in the name of the triune God. Let's just say for a moment that that's still happening today in Rome. There are debates over the the way in which they do it, but let's just accept that for a moment. And thirdly, the efficacy of baptism does not depend on the person who administers it, okay? Now, what they're not saying necessarily is that a false minister in a false church, okay, retains authority to do the ordinances of Christ. But what, what they're saying here, what we have to recognize here, is that in the 1500s, there's a period of overlap where many of these people were ordained prior to the Reformation, and there's a period where apostasy is taking root, and it's, even the Council of Trent is still going on around this time, and th- there are developments in that process of apostasy that are taking place, and so to invalidate the ordination of the Roman Catholic Church would have invalidated the ordination of many of the reformers, okay? So, so they're recognizing that just because someone in the church at that time holds to heretical teaching, that does not invalidate baptism. And we would say the same thing today. Someone who is ordained in a true church of Jesus Christ, even if they hold to heresy, they're still validly ordained in a true church and... Their administration of baptism carries the authority of the true church in which they labor. So there's a transitional period. Uh, Rome has unchurched itself, but there's a process wherein these things are worked out practically. And so notice, going back to the first prerequisite, some trace of the church is left in the papacy. If you read Calvin, if you read other theologians around that time, it's clear what they're speaking of here is a remnant. There is a remnant in the Reformation, counter-Reformation dynamic that's happening in the 1500s and even to a certain extent in the 1600s. There are people that hold to the Gospel but just don't want to leave the Church of Rome. And so within Rome, there is something of an institutional remnant even after the Council of Trent and there is a process that works itself out. And so if you were to say that Roman Catholic ordination or baptism were totally invalid in 1559 for instance you would be cutting off people that are in the process of leaving they haven't quite left the sifting process takes time and so but that's not true today that process has long since come and gone i mean where's the institutional remnant in the roman catholic church today where's the remnant that forms a trace of the true church in the roman catholic church today it's simply not there Or the least we could say is to prove your application of the reformer's principle here in accepting Roman baptism today, you'd have to demonstrate this remnant. Let's hear from them. Where are they? Where where is the Reformation, counter-Reformation dynamic in the 21st century Roman Catholic Church? Let me use an illustration here. We think of some churches that have gone apostate in our own day. Um, To one extent or another, we think of the PCUSA. Uh, We think of uh, the Reformed Church in America. Many would say they've gone apostate. But in fact, though these churches have fallen away, and in some sense, we would say they're not the true church of Jesus Christ. We could apply to them many of the things that the French Confession says of the papacy and of the Roman church. But we still accept their baptism. Why? Because they're still a remnant. There are still Bible-believing congregations in the PCUSA. We know that because every year more of them come out and join evangelical churches and denominations. We know that there's a remnant in the RCA because one of the most conservative Dutch Reformed churches in the country is in Grand Rapids, and they're still part of the RCA. There's a remnant. If we were to reject their baptism, we'd be rejecting faithful brothers within those institutional remnants there's a process of apostasy the reformers had the common sense to understand that but they were not saying that rome has this perpetual carte blanche to be a true church with a true baptism 500 years down the road when the process has come and gone uh, so it's very important for us to understand some people say uh, well rome affirms the trinity but if you look at 2 corinthians 11:3 and 4 it ranks the preaching of another Jesus, the preaching of another spirit, and the preaching of another gospel as all equally indicative of a false church uh, that's led by Satan's ministers. Read 2 Corinthians 11. If you have a f- false view of the gospel, that's on par with a false view of Christ or the Holy Spirit. Uh, if Rome doesn't bring the doctrine of Christ, don't wish them Godspeed. It's not just the Trinity that God is concerned with. You say, but there are believers in Rome. Well, if they stay in Rome within an idolatrous church context, then 1 Corinthians six nine says, no idolater will inherit the kingdom. Galatians five twenty, Revelation twenty one eight, we could go on and on. Those who remain willfully perpetually in the Roman church are idolaters and will not inherit the kingdom, it shows they're not truly converted. You say, but what about new converts? Aren't there people who've been converted? And right now, they're in a Roman Catholic mass, right now, they've been converted through the gospel, but they haven't left Rome yet. Well, the same could be said of mosques and synagogues, the same could be said of Naaman, after his conversion, he went back to the house of Rimen. That doesn't make the house of Rimen a true church. Of course, there are new converts that have just been born again who went back to the Mormon temple, who went back to the mosque this week because of social pressure or to the synagogue. There are true believers in false worship services, but God is calling them out, and when he saves them, they will eventually come out from among them. That does not indicate an institutional righteous remnant or a true church. Now, briefly, I know my time is gone, but just very briefly, some application. First, examine yourself. Examine yourself. As the Old Testament prophets would say, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Are you among those who worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh? See, it's not enough to be part of the true, visible church of Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, you need to be part of the invisible church. One who not only draws near with their lips, but with their heart as well circumcise the foreskin of your heart cut away cast away by the grace of God all other hope all other faith or trust everything else so that you might have true assurance of right standing with God solely and exclusively on the basis of Christ's saving work renounce sin and renounce self-righteousness And if you are connected with a false church that teaches these things, come out from among them. Secondly, choose a believing spouse. Choose a believing spouse. Uh, The Apostle Paul warns us against unequal yokings, and I think this applies especially in marriage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Christians can often think, well, you know, the person that I'm going to marry, they love Jesus, but they're Roman Catholic. But you know, we have so much in common. We're both pro-life and whatever, conservative politically and so on and so forth. Uh, Maybe we can make it work. But my friends, as Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, those who don't have the faith of Abraham. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Beware. Beware. Thirdly, teach your children. Teach your children so that your children, like Timothy, will grow up from an early age knowing the Scriptures which are able to make them wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. Explain to your children the difference between justification and sanctification. Explain it in simple terms, but explain to them the difference between what Jesus did for you and salvation, justification by faith alone, and on the other hand, faith works by love, and we obey God and keep His commandments. Distinguish these things. Distinguish that aspect of salvation that is through the imputation of Christ's righteousness alone from that aspect of salvation whereby the grace of God we work out our salvation. Teach it to them so that they know it. Fourthly, safeguard your witness. Safeguard your witness when you go out to, to advance the kingdom, to engage in efforts of the Great Commission. Safeguard your witness. Ezra 4, 1-4 tells us that the people of the land tried to join God's people in building the temple and in advancing God's kingdom in the days of Ezra, the Samaritans. Uh, who knew not what they worshiped, they didn't know the true covenant promises, they didn't have true faith, they didn't serve that one Lord, they didn't have that one faith, they weren't part of the one body. And Ezra and the leadership rightly said, no, but we will advance God's kingdom. We will serve our God. We will build His temple. It's not to say we can't engage, you know, if if an army comes through and you and your Roman Catholic neighbor, you know, defend yourselves and and join in tandem to to protect the community. There's nothing wrong with that. There is a co-belligerency between believers and unbelievers at a societal level, but in terms of the Great Commission, evangelism, and any efforts that are done in the name of Christ, safeguard your witness from fellowship with unbelievers. Finally, study this doctrine. Study it. Know it. uh, Read Calvin's commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians, excellent way to be introduced to this doctrine from the Scriptures. Read James Buchanan on justification, one of the best books, probably the best book in the English language on that subject. Study it, know it, take comfort in this beautiful doctrine. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, what a privilege to have been baptized into one body. To have been given this one faith in our one Lord. We pray that you would sustain our faith. That we would not grow weary in it, but persevere in faith and obedience. That we would hold fast and contend for this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we pray that you would bring down and destroy and defeat all of your enemies and advance the banner of your truth for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.